We are in a series on the Sermon on the Mount, and we are studying the Sermon on the Mount uh, verse by verse through the whole summer. Uh, and today, as Pastor Andrew said, we hit a, uh, a topic that's going to hit us back. Uh, in the days of the American Revolutionary War, there were many, many stories of lives lost on both sides of the conflict, both the, uh, the revolution and, and, and the British sides. But today I want to share a story um, of life, a life that was saved. Uh, Peter Miller uh, was a minister in the German Reformed Church, and he, he came to America and uh, was ministering out there in Ephrata, Pennsylvania. Pastor Andrew, do you know where Ephrata, Pennsylvania is? Okay, there you go. Um, it's from Ephrata. And uh, he preached in a number of churches out there in, in Ephrata. He served, uh, as I said, in the German Reformed Church. How do, we don't know exactly why, but for some reason he decided to switch teams and he went to uh, minister in the Seventh-day Baptist Church at Ephrata. And uh, he was a minister through the whole uh, revolution. He was uh, a man that had an extensive uh, acquaintance with, with uh, very important people. He's widely known. He was extremely intelligent, graduated from university in Heidelberg. Um, and uh, he actually had a personal acquaintance with George Washington, and who visited Ephrata uh, a number of times. And they, and they together knew each other pretty well. He was talented, highly educated. Uh, Thomas Jefferson actually asked him to translate the Declaration of Independence into seven, seven foreign languages. And in and, and so doing, he helped explain to the rest of the world what was going on in America. <clears throat> There's another man that lived in Ephrata. His name is Michael Whitman. He was a deacon in the German Reformed Church where Peter Miller used to be the minister. And when uh, Peter Miller left the minister at another church, this really, really angered Michael Whitman. Even though he was a deacon in that church, it got to the point where if he saw Peter Miller on the street, it's been reported that he would spit on him. And there was one occasion when they were interacting with each other, Michael Whitman actually struck Pastor Miller in the face. Pastor Miller endured it all uh, pretty well, it's been reported never speaking a bad word about Michael Whitman, uh, even though his conduct was, was shameful. Well, Whitman was uh, an owner of a hotel there in, in, in Ephrata, and actually two of them. And the story goes that uh, in the tavern in the hotel one day, one winter evening, uh, two men came to the tavern and, and they were serving them food. And, and Whitman uh, entered the dining room and began a conversation with these two men as he sat on the windowsill, he started to express his opinions about the revolution. And what you need to know is that Michael Whitman was a sympathizer with the British. He was actually a Tory, had met with one of the generals to offer his services for the British cause. Little did he know the two men that he was speaking with were American spies. And after some length of time, they sprang up from their chairs and they said, you are going to be tried for treason, and they arrested him. They took Michael Whitman to uh, Valley Forge, in fact, where General Washington was stationed. He was tried for treason, and he was found guilty 
and was to be hung. Now, as, as I stated before, Peter Miller was not necessarily the best of friends with Michael Whitman. But when he heard that a death sentence was declared on Michael Whitman, Peter Miller uh, got up early in the morning from Ephrata and walked on foot to Valley Forge. It's about 50 miles because he wanted a meeting with General Washington. He was going to intercede for the life of Michael Whitman. And so uh, Peter Miller uh, meets with, with Washington and he says, uh, um, I've come to pray for my friend and, and to ask you to hold the stay of execution. And uh, Washington told Miller, no, he's got to make an example of Michael Whitman. He's got to make an example of his friend. And, and Peter Miller ended up confessing, well, actually, he's not my friend. In fact, he's one of my worst enemies. He's persecuted me. He actually called him an incessant reviler. But Pastor Miller said, my faith teaches me to pray for those who persecute me. Washington said, you've walked 60 miles to save the life of your enemy? That, in my judgment, puts the matter in a completely different light. I will grant his pardon, but you must deliver it. And so the pardon was written and signed by General Washington and handed to Peter Miller, who, by the way, had just walked from Ephrata to Valley Forge, and now he had to make the trip out to Westchester in time to stay the execution, which he did. He arrived just as Whitman was being uh, carried to the scaffold. When, when it's been reported, when Whitman saw Miller approaching, he said, well, there's old Peter Miller. He's walked all this way from Ephrata to have his revenge gratified to see me hung today. But as soon as Miller presented the pardon from Washington, everything halted. And it's been reported that they walked home together to Ephrata, and they remain firm friends. Now, Michael Whitman still had some punishment coming his way. His, his property was taken from him, was confiscated for his, his crimes. Uh, he ended up moving out west and, and lived a full life. But never before had Peter Miller been able to express and to demonstrate these words of Jesus, where Jesus says, You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy? No. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Pray for those who persecute you. I believe those are the most powerful words in this most powerful sermon given by the most powerful person who's ever lived, Jesus Christ. When he said, uh, in his Sermon on the Mount, you've heard it said, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you, do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. And you've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are, you not, even, are not even the tax collectors doing that? 
And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. These are radical words, but they are words that are needed, not just in the society of Jesus and in the ears of his disciples, but in ours as well. Before we really dig in here, uh, let's understand that Jesus here is talking about our personal interactions as his disciples. The entire Sermon on the Mount is talking about how we treat one another. That's who he's directing his message to. You can see that at the very beginning of chapter 5 as he sat down with his disciples. The context is our personal dealings with one another. And in this passage now, once again, he's talking about conflict. The last weeks, that's what we've been talking about. Each topic that Jesus is pulling out and addressing is talking about conflict, it seems. There must have been a lot of conflict in his day. <clears throat> we don't have that much conflict in our day, do we? No. So maybe we could just skip this part. No, we have a lot of conflict. The divide has never been greater in every kind of way. So what kind of conflict is he talking about here? First of all, notice he's talking about a conflict with an evil person in verse 39. An evil person. He's not talking about military conflict, nation against nation. He's not talking about governmental conflict. That's the you know, conflict between people and their governments. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about personal conflict. In fact, Jesus didn't speak on the issue of government or national conflict very much at all. Maybe a few instances, like when he said uh, we should render to Caesar what is Caesar's, that's taxes, and render to God what is God's. Or when he was before Pilate and Pilate was ready to sentence him to death, Pilate asked him, don't you realize that I have power, I have governmental power either to free you or to crucify you? How did Jesus answer? You would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Jesus didn't talk a whole lot about government, military actions, and such. In fact, the Sermon on the Mount is really not addressing that. It's addressing, instead, how we interact with one another. That's very important to notice that. So who is this, this, this evil person? In, in, in the passage that we read, there's a few details that we can kind of tease out to see who he's talking about, because, you know, evil to one person is different than evil uh, to another. But it's clear that we're talking about a person that exhibits habits that are opposing God's desires. Somebody who's clearly even against you, not just against God, but against you for some reason. Who are these people? Verse 46, he mentions tax collectors. These were people who collaborated with the Roman oppression. And, and took advantage of people through excessive taxes. You can think of them as people whose political persuasions antagonize you. People whose political uh, persuasions antagonize you and are against you. In verse 47, he talks about pagans. These were people who had different religions. Religions that glorified sex, religions that glorified other idols. They followed a completely different set of more principles, the pagans. Maybe we can think of them as, as any person whose moral character dis disgusts us, the pagans. These are not people that they have an affinity for. 
And so as we talk about loving your enemies, Jesus kind of rounds out who that is. He's talking about people that we don't naturally have an affinity for. In fact, they antagonize us in some way. I mean, it's easy to love those with whom you have an affinity. It's way more difficult to love people who are politically, morally corrupt or enemies, as Jesus calls them, or evil, as Jesus refers to them. So before we can really talk about how to do that, how to love our enemies, maybe we should be asking the question that certainly the listeners at the Sermon on the Mount were asking, and that is, why should I love my enemy? Before we can talk about how, why, Jesus, should I love my enemy? After all, my rabbis had taught me to love my neighbors, but hate my enemies. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. Love your, why should I love my enemies? Let me give you three reasons. Why would I need to love my enemy? Number one, because God does. Because God does. Look at verse 45, Matthew 5. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good. And he sends rain on the righteous and the righteous. So God loves them. We need to love them. Why would I love my enemy? Because God does. I need to love my enemy because God does. And he expects his children to follow his lead. And secondly, uh, I need to love my enemies because love does not equal affinity. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? I mean, they like each other. And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Don't even the pagans do that? They say hello to each other on the street. They're buds. So if you're just doing that in your own tribe, that's affinity. That's not love. If my love for others is expressed to people who are just like me, who think just like me, who vote just like me, who speak just like me, who live just like me, who look just like me, friends, that's not love. That's affinity. Love goes beyond that. Affinity, you see, creates these, these walls. Affinity convinces us to stay inside those comfortable walls. Love, on the other hand, leaps over those comfortable affinity walls, and it draws people into God's purposes, into God's heart, and into God's community of faith. Love goes over those walls. I need to love my enemies because affinity is not the same thing as love. The third one's kind of pretty simple, but it's hard because Jesus is commanding it. Jesus isn't saying, here's a suggestion. That person you really don't like, that really disgusts you, eh, think about loving them. That's not what he says. He says, love your enemies. Love your enemies. It's a command. So when retaliation or revenge seems like the right thing to do, we need to stop. When we get this eye for an eye mentality, that's retaliation mode. That's not love mode. We need to stop right there. I know that is counterintuitive. That is, un, uh, that, is, that is unnatural to stop. When we feel like fighting is the right thing to do, Jesus says any disciple of his needs to respond, not naturally, but supernaturally and to love our enemies. That's really, really difficult. 
In fact, it's, it's impossible. We need his spirit to help us to do that, to love our enemies, to go beyond affinity and to love. So <clears throat> what does it actually look like? What does it look like to love my enemy? How do I love my enemy? Well, first of all, we need to get away from the idea of settling the score. Don't settle the score. An eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Don't settle the score. That's God's job. Don't practice the eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Remember, again, Jesus is not talking about ministering justice in a courtroom. He's talking about how we interact with one another. An eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth is not the way of love with one another. Don't take revenge. Don't settle the score. It's God's job. How about Romans 12 here? Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it's if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. It's not our job to settle the score, person to person. God will ultimately settle the score. There's no reason for us to do it ourselves in our relationships. That's not the way of Jesus. Read that. And as I said in the beginning, we have a, a, a sermon today that is going to hit us back in the face. And it does for me. And when I, I think practically, does Jesus really know what he's asking us to do here? He's saying to not resist, to not fight back when mistreated. Does Jesus know what he's talking about? Well, let me ask a couple questions. Did Jesus ever stand down to evil people when he could have stood up to them? Just go meet him in the Garden of Gethsemane, right? Where he told Peter to put his sword away, and he was arrested. Did Jesus ever turn the other cheek after being slapped? Well, if you were in the courtyard while he was awaiting his trial, he was punched repeatedly by the soldiers. Was Jesus ever forced to walk a mile and go further? Consider that brutal walk through Jerusalem, carrying the crossbeam of his own cross up to the hill, up to Calvary. Did Jesus ever hand over his shirt and then his clothes? If you were at the foot of the cross, you would see him naked because the soldiers took his cloak and were gambling for it at the foot of the cross. That Jesus gave and gave and gave and didn't turn away, even from those who were putting him to death. So Jesus knows what he's talking about when he says, love your enemies. It's his way, especially when retribution or revenge or retaliation seems like the right thing to do. Love your enemies, Jesus says. Peter, uh, who was the one in the Garden of Gethsemane, right after the prayer session, as Jesus was getting ready to be arrested, Peter was the one that struck the guard with a sword. But after the resurrection, he became a changed man. And this is what he said. He said, if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. If you suffer for doing good, it's commendable before God. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you 
leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. It's a changed man. Don't take it upon yourself to settle the score. God will. Well, and God did settle the score. Because, you know, after the cross came the resurrection, right? Came the resurrection, and, and by his own words, someday he's going to return, not as a suffering servant, but as a conquering king. He'll settle the score. So one of the first things, the first hurdle that you may need to jump over, before you can begin loving your enemies in the way of Jesus, is to go to God and say, God, I've, I'm done trying to find a way to get back at him. I'm done holding that grudge. Because really, what a grudge is, is just I'm waiting for the score to be settled. That's what a grudge is. God, release me from these chains of revenge that I've put around myself. Release me from that. I want to follow in your steps. I want to follow your example. And if that means I have to suffer, then I will suffer. Don't try to settle the score. That's God's job. Number two, overbless instead of resist. Overbless instead of resist. Jesus says, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. Well, that's hard. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile because they're lost, this was a common practice. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them a second mile. And then Paul reiterates that when he says, you know, um, uh, don't take revenge. On, on the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Not by fighting back, with good. So when Jesus says, love your enemy... He's not talking about wait for the warm feelings so that, to come along so that you guys can Can you really have warm feelings for someone that's antagonizing you? I don't think so. Listen, love is not a feeling. And when we love our enemies, it's not going to be about feeling. Love is a choice. It's an action. It's a decision. Which is why we read in Romans that loving your enemy is, is feeding and clothing and and, and praying, it, it's, it's doing things. I love how God describes his love, his kind of love for his people in Deuteronomy chapter 7. It just brings home that point that love is really a decision. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 6 through 8, I read, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen. Out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more than other peoples, for you were the fewest of all people. In other words, God didn't say, I'm going to go with the, with the winners. He didn't say that. God didn't say, out of all the NFL teams, who's won the most Super Bowls? They're going to be my people. They're my team. That's not what he said. God didn't choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples, because you were the fewest of all peoples. It was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your ancestors that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery. God made a promise, and God chose a people, and he was gonna, he's going to keep that promise. So love is a choice. 
Love is a choice. That's God's kind of love. A demonstrative, a decisive, a divine kind of love is a choice. And there's no greater example than the good news, the gospel of Jesus, right? Where we read in Romans 5, as, as Pastor Andrew was praying, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. God demonstrates his love demonstratively. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. There was a choice. I'm sending my son, and he is going to die for your sins. For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? We were God's enemies, and he chose to love us by sending his son to die for our sins, to, to pay the debt that we have built up with our sins. While we were still enemies of God, Jesus chose to pay the penalty of our sin with his very life. And through that decision of love, open up the way to be reconciled to God. From enemies to friends. If God demonstrated his love toward us when our sin caused us to be his enemies, how can we, now that we are his children, do any less for those who are our enemies? Let me say that again. If God demonstrated his love toward us while we were his enemies because of our sin, how can we, now that we are his children, do any less for our enemies than to love them? Well, let's get specific. Let's get specific. Let's just talk about loving our enemies with our words. Let's get specific. Those verses in Romans, how do I overbless? He says, feed your enemy. Romans 12, 20. Have you had that difficult person over for dinner? Why would I do that? What a horrible night. Because we're commanded to love our enemies. And you can do that by feeding them. Or take them out to lunch or give them a Wawa gift card to say thank you for something. That would blow their minds, right? Feed your enemy. Or give them something to drink, Paul says. Bring in two water bottles, one for you and one for them. Or how about dropping water bottles off to both parties at the polls, Republican and Democrat. Jesus also gave some very practical, demonstrable ways to love your enemies in his sermon. In the Sermon on the Mount, he said, pray for your persecutors. Pray for them. I know your friends are on your prayer list. My friends are on my prayer list. But are your enemies on your prayer list? What do I pray for my enemy? Certainly, I want to pray that they come to know Christ. How about also praying for ideas how we can overbless them? Let's get our enemies on our prayer lists. And Jesus said in, in uh, verse 47, as he, as he was talking about uh, the pagans, how about greeting your enemy? You know what I do when I see somebody that I don't like in the grocery store? I go to the next aisle. Right? That's your natural reaction. Hopefully they didn't see me. That's our natural response when we see an antagonistic person. We, we, we want to avoid them. We don't want to greet them. Well, how about asking them the same kind of questions you ask your friends? How was your weekend? What are your kids up to? That's so difficult with our enemies. Greet them. That's a way to love them. And in verse 42, Jesus says, give to the one who asks you. And he's referring specifically to enemies. 
Do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Jesus isn't talking about being frivolous here. He's saying, don't be generous with your friends and then stingy with your non-friends. And maybe it's not even about giving money. Maybe it's about time. If that person is asking you to stay an extra hour or give up some more time at work, give to them. Give to the one who asks you and don't turn away. And when we're generous to our enemies, what happens? Paul says, in doing this, when you're generous, you will heap burning coals on his head. Now, I don't think we're supposed to get excited about that. Like, yes, coals on the head. Here we go. I think that's the motivation. What it's saying is you're breaking down your enemy's defenses by being generous to them, by being Christ-like and generous to them. You're just breaking. They don't know what to do with that. To her, your generosity is worse than just duking it out. Be generous with them. So how can I love my enemies? Finally, Jesus says, be impartial with your blessings, even as God is. Verse 48 says, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, he obviously doesn't mean perfect in terms of behavior, because we know that's not going to happen as long as we have our sin nature. The word perfect can also be translated as complete. And I believe he's talking here about being completely impartial because of the context of what he just said, where he reigns on the unrighteous and the righteous, and, and he blesses, he sends his son on the good and the evil. Here Jesus means be completely impartial in your blessing as your heavenly Father is impartial with his blessings. That's how we know that we're his kid, because we're being like our father. Don't just bless those with whom you have an affinity, because that's not love to begin with. And, and it doesn't reflect anything of God to the world. But when we are impartial and we bless our enemies, we're reflecting the very love of God that he showed to us. So take an inventory of your blessing output. Who gets it? How many of your enemies get a blessing from you? What, because when you do that, guess what? You're being like Jesus. And the, and the Heavenly Father says, that's one of my kids. I can tell by the way they're loving their enemies. They're blessing their enemies. In 2018, there was a horrific school shooting in Florida, and some of you may remember it in Broward County, when um, a mentally unstable young man by the name of Nicholas Cruz entered an elementary school and began to open fire. It was terrible. There were several prayer vigils that were held in the community in the weeks that ensued. And the New York Post reported that the vigil on the Thursday evening after uh, the shooting, it ended with a request. The speaker had requested everyone to write down one specific act of good that they would perform in the coming days and weeks as a way to channel these raw emotions into something, something positive. And some of those notes were, were then read over the loudspeaker. And amazingly, many of them were prayers, not just for the families, but also for the family of Nicholas Cruz and for Nicholas himself. And as that vigil closed, a gentleman by the name of Eddie Bevel 
from Park Ridge Church. Holding back tears, he, he prayed this. Lord, we ask that you would intervene in Nicholas's disturbed mind and show him the hope that can only be found in you. We pray for your miraculous work to be evident in him and in spite of him. That's someone who understands what it means to love your enemies. Jesus teaches us, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. That bitterness, rage, uh, retaliation, that has no place in the heart of a disciple of Jesus. Prayer is the response to persecution. Evil is overcome by good, and the goal is God's purpose, which is changed lives and renewed hope. So, do you have any Michael Whitmans in your life? You know, that person that just rubs you the wrong way. They go out of their way to just antagonize you. Maybe even antagonize your faith. I hope it's not to the point where you get spit at or you get struck, but that may be coming. How far will you walk? for your enemy? How long will you pray for your enemy? What good will you do to follow in Christ's footsteps and suffer to save a life? Jesus says the way to destroy an enemy is not by fighting. It's by praying for them and for loving them. Let's close. Before I close in prayer, just take a quiet moment. I hope that as you were listening, the Holy Spirit brought somebody to mind that just aggravates you to no end. Now, they may not be an enemy in the sense that they've done something atrocious, but well, maybe they have. But it would be wrong for us to leave this room, to leave the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount without praying. So in your heart, would you, would you lift that person's name up uh, to the Lord? That, that Michael Whitman in your life, would you lift their name up to the Lord? As, as difficult or even painful as that may be, would you pray for a blessing for them? If you need to, would you just confess to the Lord, Lord, I'm done waiting to see the score settled. I'm done trying to settle the score. I'm leaving that with you and just release that to the Lord. And ask the Lord for a specific way that you can overbless and not just resist or avoid or attack, retaliate. Lord, um, how can I overbless this person? Father, we want to leave this room as disciples of Jesus 
who not only hear your words, but put them into practice. If we, Lord, could love one enemy and see a life change, Father, the world will take notice. The people who need you, who are drawn to you, will take notice. And so we confess that we cannot do any of this in our, in our own power. The Sermon on the Mount is not an ideal that we post in a schoolroom or, or in a courtroom and say, this is the way everybody should be because we know we can't be that without Christ. The only person who can live the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus. And so we ask you, Jesus, by your spirit to live it through us, including loving our enemies. And may you be glorified. May people say, oh, they are, they're different. That must be what God is like. He loves people who are enemies. God, we want to reflect you and be your children in the truest sense of the word to be like our father. And so we ask these things. We pray for those who are our enemies, who are antagonists. And Lord, let us be like Jesus and follow in his footsteps in this way. In his name we pray. Amen.